The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A six-month check-in on the coronavirus, TLDR, it's going to last a long time, wear a mask. Recreating what Johann Sebastian Bach's music sounded like to him, the introvert and extrovert's guide to thriving during lockdown, and even more evidence that dogs are indeed very good boys. Now that it is somehow inexplicably June, we can pretty much say the coronavirus has been a part of our lives for about six months. Not that we really have an exact date of when it started, but early January is when it really started ramping up. So with the first half of 2020 over, the New York Times took a pulse on where things are at and what we know right now. First, we'll have to live with this for a long time. Even the most optimistic estimates about a possible vaccine would be a year or more away before everyone got access to it. And while the cases are declining or holding steady in some places, the virus doesn't really show signs of stopping. We're in this for the long haul. Second, you should be wearing a mask. Quoting the Times, researchers know that even simple masks can effectively stop droplets spewing from an infected wearer's nose or mouth. In a study published in April in Nature, scientists showed that when people who are infected with influenza, rhinovirus, or a mild cold-causing coronavirus wore a mask, it blocked nearly 100% of the viral droplets they exhaled, as well as some tiny aerosol particles, end quote. Wearing a face mask can also help prevent you from touching your face, and as Dr. Robert Atmar, an infectious disease specialist at Baylor College of Medicine, says, it's better than nothing. Third, American public health infrastructure needs an update. Quoting again, The United States knows how to fight wars, but as the past few months have shown, the American response to pathogens can easily become a shambles, even though pathogens kill more Americans than many wars have. We have no viral Pentagon. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is more of an FBI for outbreak investigations than a war machine. For years, under both the Obama and Trump administrations, its leaders have had to seek clearance for almost every utterance. As war does to defeated nations, pandemics expose the weaknesses of their systems. Our patchwork and uncoordinated response has produced more than 100,000 deaths. Surely we can do better. End quote. Fourth, responding to the virus is extraordinarily expensive. The federal government has promised to spend over $2 trillion on the pandemic. This money is going largely to vaccines, testing, and economic safety nets, but experts say far more money is needed, and there has already been plenty of debate about how the money should be allocated. Fifth, we have a long way to go to fix virus testing. We're now testing hundreds of thousands of people a day throughout the country, far better than we were doing before, but public health experts say we'll need at least 900,000 to a million per day just to test hospital patients, nursing home residents, and employees returning to work. 
Sixth, we can't count on herd immunity to keep us healthy. Apart from us being super far away from enough positive cases to even consider herd immunity, some doctors say the concept of enough people getting it and being immune and therefore the virus dying out might not even hold up in this case. Quote, Dr. Paul Offit of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania noted that while some vaccines eliminated measles, rubella, and smallpox and almost eliminated polio in the United States, vaccines against influenza and whooping cough have not stopped outbreaks. Influenza and whooping cough have spread even after enough people in a community have been vaccinated to, in theory, stop the diseases. That's because the antibodies that protect people against viruses infecting mucosal surfaces like the lining of the nose tend to be short-lived, end quote. Seventh, the virus produces more symptoms than expected. There's the shortness of breath and coughing, but there can also be sore throat, fever, chills and muscle aches, headaches, gastrointestinal upset, a loss of taste and smell, and red and purple lesions on the fingers or toes. In more severe cases, it can lead to pneumonia, acute respiratory distress, kidney failure, blood clots, stroke, and more. This disease is all over the place, and so much more than we thought just six months ago. Eighth, we can worry a bit less about infection from surfaces. The studies proving how long the virus lasted on various types of surfaces did not test for the live virus, only for traces of its genetic material. The CDC has said since March that surface transmission is not the main way the virus is spread. Ninth, we can also worry less about a mutating virus. Mutations as viruses spread is common and usually insignificant. Sometimes the mutation does have a noticeable effect, sometimes making it worse, sometimes making the virus itself weaker. But compared to other viruses, the new coronavirus mutates relatively slowly, which is good news for the potential of an effective vaccine. And finally, we can't count on warm weather to defeat the virus. Quote, A few things are known about conditions that do or do not favor the virus. The ultraviolet rays in sunlight help destroy the virus on surfaces, and some studies have shown a small effect from humidity. It seems to last longest on hard surfaces like plastic and metal. It won't survive in pool or lake or seawater. Wind disperses it. Risk of transmission is lower outdoors than indoors. A wooden bench under a bright sun at a breezy beach is a better bet than a metal and plastic recliner on the shady side of the pool. But if someone infected sits near you and coughs or talks a lot or sings, it doesn't really matter where you're sitting and how nice a day it is, end quote. And a final word from the article, quote, The bottom line, wear a mask, keep your distance. When the time comes in the fall, get a flu shot to protect yourself from one respiratory disease you can avoid and to help keep emergency rooms and urgent care from being overwhelmed. Hope for a treatment, a cure, a vaccine. Be patient. We have to pace ourselves. If there's such thing as a disease marathon, this is it. End quote. An interdisciplinary team led by assistant professor of audio technology at American University Braxton Boren is trying to digitally reconstruct how Johann Sebastian Bach's music would have sounded to the man himself and everyone else listening back in the 18th century. Bach spent the last 27 years of his life as the cantor at Thomas Kirke, or St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. There, he wrote some of his most famous pieces for the church choir, including 265 cantatas, the St. Matthew Passion, and Mass in B minor. 
The acoustics and architecture of a space can have a big impact on how sounds and especially complex musical compositions sound. Bach is known to have favored St. Thomas Church over others in the area, and architectural acoustics pioneer Hope Bagenal posited in the 1930s that this may have been due to interior changes made by Martin Luther in the 1500s when he preached at St. Thomas Church. Quoting the National Endowment for the Humanities, To test these theories, Boren and his team traveled to Leipzig to gather physical and acoustic measurements of the current St. Thomas Church, which has been altered many times since the Baroque period. Omnidirectional speakers allowed them to project sounds onto all surfaces equally in order to record the reverberation, clarity, and the amount of time it takes for sound to decay within the vast Gothic church. These data were used to build computer simulations that would recreate the acoustic conditions of St. Thomas Church, both as it would have sounded during box time and in the pre-Reformation era. These complex virtual acoustic models calibrate for the different reflective qualities of stone and wooden choral galleries. The absence or addition of drapes and tapestries, the depth of the church, and the relative distances between the instrumentalists, St. Thomas Church Choir, and audience. The team's calculations also took into account the acoustically absorbent properties of the congregants. In a sound studio back in Washington, D.C., an ensemble recorded several versions of the cantata Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben, which Bach composed as his first year as cantor to be integrated into the computer simulations, a computationally intense operation, says Boren, that had to be broken down into orchestral segments, end quote. The data and recordings will be released online later this year, during which time people will be able to listen to the cantata as it may have sounded not just generally in the St. Thomas Church, but from different locations within the church. And people will be able to upload their own recordings and run them through the audio filters so they can listen to them as if they are sitting in the church. Bourne is hoping that such simulations will become a common part of musical scholarship and be able to inform analysis of musical compositions and instruct accurate performance of them going forward. And while we're discussing Bach, I've got to plug two musical projects from a friend of mine. The first is called Switched Off Bach. It's a play on Wendy Carlos's synthesizer riff on the classics Switched On Bach, In Switched Off Bach, Joe DeGeorge plays Bach's compositions on an unplugged synthesizer, so that all you can hear is the tapping and plunging of the keys. In Joe's other Bach tribute project, In Glove with Bach, he plays Bach's invention number eight, first normally, then again while wearing a thin pair of latex gloves, and then he plays it again in knit gloves, and on and on with progressively thicker gloves until he's playing it in boxing gloves or sometimes Mickey Mouse hands. It sounds goofy, and it kind of is, but it's also kind of great, and Bach experts love it. So if you want to check it out, links to his Bandcamp are in the show notes. When the lockdown started and so much of our work and social lives were switched over to video calls, I noticed a lot of my extrovert friends struggling, while some of my introvert friends seemed to be thriving. Within a couple of weeks, however, the introverts were struggling too. No one was enjoying video calls as a substitute for real human interaction. Every part of this experience is trying and stressful, no matter your personality type. However, our responses and potential solutions to stressors can look different based on personality type. 
Bloomberg broke down some tips for coping during quarantine using two pairs of personality types from the Myers-Briggs test. You know, the psychological personality test your work might have made you take that sorts people into 16 different personality types, all with letters like INTJ or ESFP. Full disclosure here, while I claim to be an ENFJ, I've gotten different results almost every time I've taken the test, which leads me to be more than a little skeptical about any very serious applications of the test's findings. But, you know, simple individual tips for coping based on your general personality type and not on a hard and fast rule still seems useful. So in addition to introvert and extrovert, which I think we're all familiar with, this article also has tips for people who are judging or perceptive. According to Myers-Briggs, quote, those who lean toward judging prefer structure and firm decisions. People who lean toward perceiving are more open, flexible, and adaptable, end quote. One thing the article points out is that no matter your personality type, introverted, extroverted, perceiving, judging, during the stress and unusualness of lockdown, you may find yourself swinging to the opposite personality type in ways you're unaccustomed to handling, which is what can cause atypical outbursts or withdrawal from other people. So to offset any of that, here are some tips. Quoting Bloomberg, for introverts, find a quiet place to work. If you have roommates, retreat to a space where you can be alone or buy noise-canceling headphones. Be more playful with colleagues and take opportunities to chat. Make time to sit down and reflect on what's happening, perhaps having lunch in a quiet spot instead of eating at your desk. For extroverts, maintain connections by taking part in virtual pub quizzes or using Zoom or Skype to keep in touch with pals. Make your home environment stimulating by playing music, taking regular breaks to chat with friends, or spending time outdoors. Ask for some quiet time if you need it. For judges, Try to move as quickly as possible to a new routine to overcome the shock of sudden lifestyle change. Dedicate a corner of the room for working, since you prefer things to be compartmentalized. Change into work clothes each morning to create a sense of separation from home life. For perceivers, mix up your days and change your work schedule to avoid a sense of monotony. Consider taking longer breaks in the day and catching up with work in the evening when necessary. Respect deadlines and don't start shooting off emails at 2 a.m. that might cause a panic among colleagues. End quote. Advice for coping during this time is not one-size-fits-all, so as silly or annoying as personality tests can sometimes be, they can be really useful to get advice that's a little bit more tailored and to be cognizant of how others in our lives may be struggling and how we can help. Ending today with some news about some very good boys. A new study from Arizona State University further confirms what we pretty much know. Our dogs really do want to save us when we're in danger, so long as they know how to do so. The researchers conducted a series of tests with dogs and their owners to test what dogs' motivations to help might be. The tests included having the owners sit inside a box and call out in distress, having the owners sit in the box while quietly reading, and having food in the box without the owner. The box had a lightweight door that could easily be moved by the dogs, but the dogs had to work it out on their own how to do it. About a third of the dogs ended up rescuing their owners, 
But co-author of the study Joshua Van Borg says, quote, The key here is that without controlling for each dog's understanding of how to open the box, the proportion of dogs who rescued their owners greatly underestimates the proportion of dogs who wanted to rescue their owners, end quote. The dogs were much more stressed during the distress test when the owners feigned that they were stuck in a box. Quoting Van Borg again, When their owner was distressed, they barked more and they whined more. In fact, there were eight dogs who whined, and they did so during the distress test. Only one other dog whined, and that was for food, end quote. Psychologist Clive Wynn, another author of the study, said, quote, What's fascinating about this study is that it shows that dogs really care about their people. Even without training, many dogs will try and rescue people who appear to be in distress, and when they fail, we can see how upset they are. The results from the control tests indicate that dogs who fail to rescue their people are unable to understand what to do. It's not that they don't care about their people. Next, we want to explore whether the dogs that rescue do so to get close to their people or whether they would still open the box even if that did not give them the opportunity to come together with their humans. End quote. That is all for today, and I just want to acknowledge here that Despite the fact that we are focusing on good news on this show, most of the news out there right now is not great. I haven't included stories about the ongoing protests in honor of George Floyd and for justice for Black Lives because the show is focused on sharing COVID-19 news and then some good stuff as an antidote to that, not any other very serious news. And while the point of the protests is righteous and will hopefully lead to positive change, I wouldn't really classify news about the protests right now as a distracting antidote from the realities of the world. Just the opposite, in fact. They're meant to make us wake up and recognize reality. And I've worried that if I were to offer some of the few uplifting stories related to the protests, it would come across as belittling the severity of the situation overall. That might change as the days go on, because, frankly, silence on the issue also feels wrong. But like I said, apart from updating you on coronavirus news, the point of this show is to be a brief, uplifting distraction from the more serious, pressing news of the day. Not a distraction for your whole day or from the real issues out there, just a quick reprieve to re-energize us to face the harsh realities of the world and fight together to make it better. Talk to you tomorrow.